So I, the reason I wanted to read this, um, this is something I am particularly passionate about, being a seminarian, um, is the use, especially being a southerner, of the term y'all. I love that term so, so much. Um, and we don't have that formally in the English language. So if you read your translation, you'll just see you all the time. And it's an implied you plural. But I, I translated this one, in inserting the y'alls, um, because particularly I wanted us to hear the communal rhythm of Paul's words, Paul's what he's actually communicating to a group. So if y'all would um, re read with me this translation of Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. It says, For this reason, ever since I heard about y'all's faith in the Lord Jesus and y'all's love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for y'all, remembering y'all in my prayers, in order that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you all the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of y'all's heart may be enlightened in order that y'all may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe, according to the working of his powerful strength, that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. All right, let me get situated here real quick. Probably should have done this earlier. You can converse um, by, like, uh, amongst yourselves while I flip to the right chapter. <laughs> I'm not even using this translation. I don't honestly don't know why I'm uh, why I have it open. I have my own translation. Um, beautiful. So this morning, before we jump into our teaching, um, I'd like to talk about a particular person in church history that I find absolutely fascinating. And the story is a little bit ridiculous and a little bit extreme. So hopefully that uh, holds us in. Um, He's one of our early church fathers. He's not as well known as St. Paul or Augustine or Tertullian or Clement, all these famous um, people. His name is Simeon Stylite. Anybody? Simeon Stylite? No. Fascinating story. <laughs> Buckle up. So uh, Simeon lived around like the turn of the 5th century, so like 400s um, AD. He was born in like 390. Um, and he was a product of what we call the Desert Fathers. And so the Desert Fathers, uh, they originated around the, I guess that would have been the 3rd or 4th century um, AD. And basically they were the first monks. They were these people that took that... Um, um, the teaching of Jesus from Matthew, go and sell all your possessions, give what you have to the poor before you follow me. So they sold everything. Um, they lived in the desert, basically. Uh, and they were the first ones that kind of like instituted um, Christian monasticism. 
So Simeon's like 100 years separated from these people. Um, but he took that very teaching very seriously. He didn't come to be a Christian until later in life, or I say a little later. He's probably in his 20s or 30s. Um, but when he was one of those guys that when he got in on something, he was all in. He was like sold out. He heard about Jesus and joined a monastery practically the next day. Um, and so anyways, Simeon, um, not feeling that the monastery um, was quite for him. He wanted something even more separated, even more distant to focus and devote himself to prayer. Um, he left the monastery and he went and lived in a small hut um, right around Lent. And for Lent, most of us give up chocolate, social media. Mark, what did you give up for Lent? Uh, <laughs> gave up me. Right, yeah, we all had these little things, like pet things that we give up for Lent. Well, Simeon gave up practically everything except breathing. He ate no food. The legend says he ate no food, drank no water. I'm not sure how the water thing worked out. Um, but after Lent, he came out of this hut, and people were like, holy cow, this guy just survived 40 days with zero sustenance. And so Simeon, even though he was getting away from people, started gaining a little bit more popularity. Again, he was just devoting himself to prayer and devotion. So he left that little hut because there was too many people. He wanted to be free of distractions and went and lived at the top of a mountain. And still people kept hearing about this Simeon guy, this miraculous survivor of the uh, Lenten fast, uh, if you will. And so they would come and bring their petitions and prayers to him. And he's like, man, there's all these people around. I am like, this is not, this is not it. The, the top of the mountain is not even far enough away. And so he moved out into the desert in a curious habitat, one that gives him his name, his moniker, Simeon Stylite. Stylite is a pillar. And so he lived on top of a pillar out in the desert. Think like, I, I, I'm, I'm unsure if it was like a, a natural pillar that just formed out of the rock or if it was just a, a structure that he lived on top of. And his followers would dwell around him and he had a bucket on a rope that he would pull up food and water on as he lived on top of this pillar, some like 20 feet in the air. Uh, again, just giving his life to prayer and devotion to God. He wanted to be free from distractions. So naturally, an extreme person attracts more and more followers. Well, Simeon became more and more popular, like I just said, and would bounce around from pillar to pillar, each one getting higher and higher and higher, until his last one that he lived on was 15 meters, almost 50 feet tall in the air he lived on. Um, and he lived on these pillars for the remaining 37 years of his life were spent on top of these pillars in prayer and devotion to God. He passed away in prayer. One of his followers noticed he was lying a little, like prostrate a little bit longer than he should have, uh, and he passed away on that pillar. So that's Simeon Stylite, a guy who took something seriously. He took his prayer and his devotion seriously. Um, now, I don't tell this maybe to be a funny, like, story of, like, an extreme uh, devotee um, to prayer or, like, just to throw in some random history facts for us. Um, but could you imagine being so devoted to something that you would live 37 years of your life on top of a pillar? 
No, I can't even like decide if I want like a spicy or like regular chicken sandwich in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, right? <laughs> like I'm not going to be that devoted um, to something. But as extreme as Simeon was, the extreme of the extremes, I think he was on to something. And that is in the Christian life, we are to be people devoted to prayer. Our whole lives embody prayer. And I think if we see too, like for Simeon, that was living on top of a 50-foot pillar for 37 years to feel like he had done that. But it can look a little bit uh, different for each of us. And I think in our text today, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, Paul is showing that we are to be people devoted to prayer, um, to God and for one another. We see that like a life of prayer is our earthly calling. And Paul, here in uh, Ephesians, is writing to a fledgling group of Christians. So it's probably 30, 40 years after the death of Christ, and there's these Christian communities all over the Mediterranean, and they don't know what they're doing. They are trying to figure out how to live Christianly. What a brand new thing. And so Paul is writing this letter in order to encourage and empower them to live well, to live like Christ. And we see, and I think Paul understands this um, very well, is that we, when we're hampered by the effect of sin in our lives, again, all these Christian communities bringing all of their baggage from their past lives and coming together, when we are hampered by that ability, we have a tendency to want to do things on our own. We have a tendency to want to do things Nick's way, um, to be autonomous, to not consult this new God that I have. Um, We have a tendency to uh, maybe just keep on plowing and and not even uh, begin to acknowledge um, the God that we have in our life. But Paul, I think here, is encouraging the early Christians that a life of prayer, it's your earthly calling, but it also enlightens and invigorates your heavenly reality. I'll say that again. A life of prayer is our earthly calling, which enlightens and invigorates our heavenly reality. Does anybody know if the bank is open today? Because we're going to take that line to the bank. You can take that to the bank. You can write that down on your worship guide. Whatever you're going to do, you can take that to the bank for sure. That a life of prayer is our earthly calling, which enlightens and invigorates our heavenly reality. It's true. We're to be people of prayer. It's our earthly calling. It enlightens this kind of heavenly reality, this future that we all cling to. But the first part of that equation is understanding that a life of prayer is our earthly calling. We are to be people of prayer. So if you would, go back to me again to verses 15 through 17. We'll read those together. For this reason, ever since I heard about y'all's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and y'all's love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for y'all, remembering y'all in my prayers, in order that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give y'all the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. As I mentioned earlier, these Ephesians were a group of fledgling Christians, baby Christians. They were still nursing on their mother's milk. Maybe they had not quite moved to uh, uh, food, as Paul says in Romans uh, elsewhere. Uh, and this letter was intended to circulate throughout these churches. These people are trying to understand what does it mean, what does it look like to live Christianly? Well, we see elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's saying, look to my example 
and follow it as Christ is in me. And I think in a subtle way, Paul is doing just that here in this text. How are you supposed to live a prayerful life, unceasing, remembering one another? Um, what is that? Where, where do I have that? But, uh, so remembering one another and a calling on the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, which we have uh, in our text here. It is said that imitation is the highest form of flattery. Um, I saw this story on the internet where, um, uh, picture your nuclear family, and um, in this particular case, the wife was cooking dinner, and every time she cooked dinner, the husband said, wow, before he had ever tasted anything, wow, honey, this looks delicious. Everything's delicious. And that was his nightly routine of encouraging his wife, thanking her for the work that she had put in, providing a meal for the family. Well, they had a four-year-old daughter, and those of you who are parents in the room, um, us not quite yet, but almost, <laughs> she began to pick on to this nightly, uh, or catch on to this nightly rhythm, and she would say, wow, mommy, thanks. Everything's delicious. And so that would be their nightly routine. Until one night, she said, wow, mommy, thanks. Everything's delicious. Got her first fork of food, put it in, Realized it was not quite as delicious as she had hoped and spit it out on her plate. But all that to say, we are people who imitate. We imitate those who look up to us. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. Saturate your lives in prayer. Saturate your lives in unceasing prayer. We see that it's based on love for one another that Paul is writing this prayer. All your love for all the saints. And that's a silly, silly story. Um, but I think that's the quality of what Paul is trying to demonstrate. A committed day-to-day, continuously steps without ceasing, moment-to-moment, prayerful life. Again, he's not commanding, but he's showing a model of how to live Christianly, to live in rhythm with God, in communication with one another. We see we are to be people of prayer, a rhythm, a life of prayer. Not only does like Paul model that, um, but for him, the foundation of that prayerful life is rooted in our heavenly reality. And he wishes so badly that the Ephesians would come to know this truth. You see, that life of prayer is our earthly calling, but it invigorates our heavenly reality. Let's not forget that. Let's go back and read our text, 18 through 23. Starting verse 18, I pray, I pray that the eyes of y'all's heart may be enlightened in order that y'all may know the hope to which he has called y'all, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe according to the working of his powerful strength that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And he subjected all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I was joking with Mark just uh, previously before this, how just absolutely jammed-packed this text is with theological just like rabbit trails you could go down. But what I love so much about this text is there's something not lost on Paul that we can easily just look past in our just kind of where we are in history, our modern 
kind of Western ideal of ourselves and how we relate to the cosmos. But it is not lost on Paul in the slightest. And that is this, that as faithful followers, as believers in Christ, each and every one of us has a new cosmic reality. You see, our fate is sealed. It is headed for heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. That is where we all all stand. And for Paul, this is the absolute foundation of living the Christian life is to bring heaven here now. And that's the foundation of that prayer. He says, I just wish firmly, I pray that your hearts, your eyes of your heart may be opened to this truth, that you, your fate is sealed. You have heaven, so live like it. So for Paul, there is no reality in this world that is not intimately related and affected by our heavenly reality. That is our eternity spent in the new heavens, free from sin, suffering, shame. Our heavenly reality is our present reality, and that's what he prays so fervently. So let's like say a a citizen wanted to, like an American wanted to go live overseas. Let's say Spain, because Spain is beautiful. They have paella and jamón ibérico and all these beautiful foods and just amazing. So why wouldn't you want to go live in Spain? So let's say you want to go live in Spain, right? Um, Likely, what you could do is just say, I'm going to live. This is a very seven, Enneagram seven thing. It's to say, I'm just going to go. You could go and you could be in Spain and be absolutely lost and kind of learn things as you go. But more than likely, if you're planning on living in Spain, you're going to take time to learn the food, to learn the culture, to learn the people and their practices, and especially, you're going to learn their language. Not so different for each and one of us. We are citizens of this world, but we are also citizens of heaven. And our new language that we learn is prayer. That is the new language. That is our heavenly reality. You see, prayer is our, where am I at? Sorry. Um, I'm right here. Beautiful. All right. Yes. So that is our new language. And it's all based on this, that Paul wants us to integrate our heavenly reality into our everyday earthly life here in the dirt. Let's read verses 18 and 19 again. I pray that y'all's, the eyes of y'all's heart may be enlightened in order that y'all may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glory and inheritance, and his incomparably great power for us who believe according to the works of his powerful strength. See, a life of prayer is our earthly calling, but it invigorates our heavenly reality. Prayer is our primary force or primary form of trust and obedience to God. And it is the means by which we can bring heaven here with us in our lives, in the lives of others, and in the world around us. And how does God work? Again, prayer is our new language. When we invite God via prayer into our lives, God works. How does he work? Three R's that I love. He redeems, he restores, and ultimately he resurrects. So it's like when we pray, we are opening a conduit from this cosmological greatness that our risen Lord is really seated at the right hand of the Father. And as Paul goes on in the back half of this text, any single power, any single thing that could wish to dethrone him from that, 
he is already king over. He has already put to death any single thing that is in our life that drags us down, any pain, any, any issue. God is Lord over that. And so when we pray, we are opening up a conduit between that power and our power here, and Christ is that conduit. Christ is that channel by which. So when we pray, we invite God to make our life on earth like heaven right now. Prayer brings heaven here now. I think it's also true that just like prayer is an act of trust and obedience, this channel of communication bringing heaven here now, we ourselves through the act of prayer start to be transformed. We start to see things through the lens of our prayers. We start to see people how God sees them. I don't know about you, but uh, there have been times that I've spent in prayer, and after I finished, I remember one time walking back to my dorm on campus, and I just find that the world around me is just that much more beautiful and meaningful, some might say heavenly. Prayer helps us cultivate holiness in our lives. When we pray, we are transformed. God meets us and begins to show us the world through his eyes. And through his eyes is heaven. It reminds us of our heavenly reality. It's not far off. It's here now. So to start this sermon off, I told a story about Simeon Stylite. Um, though his methods were quite extreme, maybe seemingly ridiculous at times to live atop this 50-foot pillar, um, Friends, we too are to be committed in a similar way that Simeon is. Because a life of prayer, a rhythm of prayer, is our earthly calling. And it enlightens and invigorates our heavenly reality. So, let us lead a prayerful life. Let us be committed to spending time in our normal rhythms of life that are just given to conversations with God. See, Simeon Stylite, he went to the top of that 50-foot pillar, um, and that's where he felt that he could accomplish that the best. But what I think he misunderstood is that conversation with God isn't escape. Rather, it's integration. Prayer isn't a thing to be relegated to the high points or, or to the sacred times. Prayer is the day-to-day. -day. It's learning to talk, to converse with God to see how he sees, to think how he thinks, and do as he has done in the mundane, the everyday. God is as much there as he is on top of that pillar. So it is my hope that we begin to lead lives of continuous, never-ending prayer that brings heaven crashing into our earthly reality. It reminds us who God is and who he, we are and how much he has done for us and how much he wishes us to live good, full lives, more human than we ever have been. And that is focused heavenward, focused on Christ and focused on our eternity with him. I hope we can see that and begin to see that in our normal everyday rhythms and begin to integrate that reality with our present one. I have a book um, as an example of just a tool to help do that. Um, this is a book called Every Moment Holy. Um, it's a wonderful book, and it's full of prayers and liturgies. 
It's got everything from, um, see, this is a liturgy for watching of storms. It's got everything from making your morning cup of coffee to changing a diaper to, for Mark, the preparation of an artisanal meal. meal. Um, and what I love so much about this book is we've got structured prayers and thoughts that integrate God into our mundane, everyday life. How often do you change a diaper, April? Right, exactly. And so that's, that's what's beautiful about that. And that's leading a life of prayer, is recognizing God in each one of our situations. Another thing, so we want to integrate. Again, Simeon Stylite wanted to isolate, but prayer isn't isolation, it's integration. And that's another thing that Simeon Stylite did was he was constantly trying to get away from people. When he was at his hut, people came and he left. When he was on top of the mountain, people came and he left. When he was on a short pillar, people came and he left. Ultimately, that drove him to the highest pillar he could find where he would ultimately um, lead his last days. I think Simeon didn't quite get that right. In the same way that prayer doesn't isolate, it integrates. Prayer doesn't drive us away from people. It drives us to people. Prayer has hands and feet. Paul, even here in this text, is praying on behalf of all of these Christian communities. He's praying for them. His prayer has taken them to the people. And he's praising them for what they have done for others, for all of their love, for all the saints. You see, prayer shouldn't isolate us, although at times we do need to isolate to pray, not denying that at all. But it should cause us to see the people around us as God sees them, as valuable. It should also cause us to see how the brokenness of the world is affecting us and the people around us. And how they need redemption and restoration, just like we do, and hopefully, ultimately, resurrection. That's why I love our time of prayers to the people. That is why we integrate that into our rhythm. It's because as we integrate prayer as our new language, our constant, mundane, everyday type of communication with God. It drives us to, to humanize those who we dehumanize, to help the hurting, to feed the hungry, clothe the needy, and to redeem the unredeemable here in our communities. It can be hard at times to integrate, but what I hope we can see today is that God is as much here in this gathering as he is when he is in the changing of a diaper or the preparation of a meal or the traveling away from kids or your car rides or on the mountaintops or in your lowest valleys. It is our job to step out in faith and obedience and just ask God to be present. He's there. He wants our hearts. He wants our thoughts. And he wants us to speak in our new language with one another. And that drives us to integrate, but also to pursue other people and pursue the goodness that Christ has laid out for us. And that is our ultimate glory in heaven. Prayer is our earthly calling, but it invigorates our heavenly reality, a trajectory we are all headed towards. Praise God for that. If you would, pray with me. Lord Jesus, um, thank you for grace. Lord, um, 
where I've misspoken, I pray that you would redeem that, Father. Um, I pray that we become people that increasingly see you, Father, that we not be so caught up in the grandeur of services or, or what we may think it takes to please you or to even talk to you, God. God, I pray that we can just come to see you each and every moment, Father. The life of prayer isn't spent lying prostrate for 30 years, God, but it's active in doing and being with you, Father. So I pray that we integrate you into our lives increasingly, just as the Apostle Paul has modeled for us. Father, and that's ultimately based on our heavenly reality, what you have done for us, freeing us from our sin and shame and sealing our fate in the new heavens and new earth where God communicating with you will be the easiest thing that we have ever done. So, Father, we long for that. And we pray for that reality to come soon, Father, for you to redeem, to restore, to resurrect. It's the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit that we pray. Amen.